Hi, I'm Louis Giannis. You may have noticed that I haven't had a podcast recently. That's because I've been working on other projects that I'm really, really excited about, and I'm looking forward to sharing them with you. So I wanted to talk to you really quickly about what this podcast is about. I'm talking today about two different things. Number one, some important market and economic implications that we're seeing right now and what they mean for investors. I'm going to share some insights there with you. And the second is, is to review two important chapters of one of the best books ever written about investing. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So I want to talk a little bit about a strategist call that I was on because I found it to be extremely interesting. It was really outlining the number of uncertainties that we have right now. And it really shows how investors really need to have a compass, a compass that they can rely on that's based on economic principles and precepts that have worked long in the past and were very likely to work long in the future. Uh, I wanna just kind of break and dissect some of this down. This was actually a Schwab strategist call so they had several strategists there. Uh, Lizanne Saunders was on there. Uh, she, we also had Kathy Jones, who is a fixed income analyst. There was also Michael Townsend that was there. And I just want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, highlights, really, just, just to make a point that we have so much, I guess, so many moving parts and uncertainties that a lot of people are going to be talking about and it's going to probably drive some investors to make poor decisions. So I'm going to just kind of go over some of these things. And then I want to talk a little bit about what that compass is, in my opinion, that we should be following to keep us on track. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about was uh, really some of the political things. Michael Townsend, uh, he was talking about a lot of dysfunctional things that are happening on Capitol Hill. He even made some bold I wouldn't call them predictions, but he's looking at the probabilities of what could happen in the House and what can happen in the Senate. And normally, if there's going to be a flip in Congress, it's usually just in one part. It's either the Senate or on the House. But he says that, you know, when he breaks it down, he says, you know, we could even have a flip in both the House and the Senate. Uh, there's just a lot of dysfunctional behavior that's happening. I guess we're all getting kind of used to it. Um, sometimes having nothing getting done is a good thing, but I think because we have so many other issues that are happening right now, like this really big budget deficit problem we're having, uh, lots of interest expense that's hitting the, uh, you know, the, the roles that, you know, we're gonna have to pay for. We need things to actually get done. We, we, we don't want to have a lot of inaction right now. We want to have functional, positive movement in the right direction. He was talking about that, and there's also a lot of initiatives that are probably going to be hitting in 2024. He's talking about how AI regulations is probably going to be something we're going to be looking at, uh, probably more regulations with crypto. You know, we've already had some big mess-ups in the whole crypto area. I had been mentioning a long time ago that I really felt that looking at crypto was, was very hard to, to really understand, and that probably the federal government was going to get involved at some point, but they would have to, and people were trading it like a security, yet it wasn't a security. Uh, it wasn't regulated like a security yet. So, you know, all those things have already started to happen, and we're seeing more 
more institutionalization of crypto, but there's also probably more control likely to come with that, especially when you think about you know, trends towards moving to a digital currency. So a lot of people have uh, negative thoughts about that because of the concern about having over control with, with money. But anyhow, so that was something he was talking about. He also talked about how we have these twin deadlines, January 19th and February 2nd. You know, we have the expiration of the 2017 tax cuts. And that's going to happen in 2025. So what's going to happen there is, you know, how that changes is really going to be affected probably what happens in Congress. The fact that we have two, as he states it, two um, it's like suboptimal choices for uh, electing a new president. It, it appears that, you know, we'll probably have Trump and Biden as being the uh, Trump versus Biden scenario. I, I don't know that that's actually going to happen. Who knows what could happen with that? But if that's the case, you know, many, many people um, looking at the polls, you can tell many people are not happy with that. So there's just, you could just keep stacking all these things that can happen in uh, on uh, Capitol Hill um, like in our industry, we have a ton of things that are happening. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission has got so many things that they have to try to work on. They've been working on the Department of Labor uh, fiduciary rules forever, 14 years. Uh, the, they call it the re DOL uh, Retirement Security Rule, which has had, uh, I believe, has had some negative effects for individual investors. That's uh, supposed to be protecting investors, but it just keeps getting pulled off and on, and some things are going to happen. The whole industry is in a mess right now. But evidently, if things don't get turned around by May 2024, 20, uh, uh, you know, Congress will have to start looking at it again, uh, based on some ruling. So I, I'm not sure how that's going to work out. But there's just all these things the SEC is trying to do. They're very busy. You know, what's going to happen with climate risk disclosure, lots of companies are pushing back on um, having to do all this extra work and spend lots of extra money to, to have risk disclosures on climate that's not really effective affecting their business, according to them. Uh, there's, you know, obviously it's a uh, heated debate about the climate issues. There's a, really a whole structure on equity market structure that's coming down the pike. Use of predictive analytical data uh, when delivering investment advice, expanded custody rules, cybersecurity risk rules, oversight of third party. There's just a lot of things going on in the SEC that's going to affect some of the uh, asset management industry. So for those people who are watching who are in the investment management business, you know, that's that's something that's really going to come down to pike. Obviously, the election, Trump's got the legal issues. Who knows what's going to happen with that? Some people are, feel like the legal thing, uh, the legal uh, expansion of cases that are there are kind of like overkill. And other people feel like, you know, they just need to nail Trump down. So it's a very, I know a lot of people, different viewers, different uh Clients have different views on that. Uh, but regardless of what your view is, it's going to lead to more uncertainty, most likely. Who knows what could happen there? Biden's age is also obviously a problem, and we have two flawed solutions, at least as it stands today. We could have some major flips with other candidates or maybe new candidates coming in. So, yeah, and that plus the fact that, you know, we have the a potential flip in the House uh, in the Senate. Who knows? Uh, but but it looks like there's slight edges for flips, and actually in both, which is very unusual. So that was something that I thought was very interesting. As far as from the the economic standpoint, uh, Lizanne Sanders had some interesting points that she mentioned about 
you know, how the debt structure is with the consumer and how that may or may not affect things. So according to her, consumer debt, uh, you know, obviously we're seeing delinquencies going up. We see delinquencies up in subprime primarily uh, issues, auto loans as well, consumer credit, but not so much in mortgages or student loans. As far as the overall debt ratios, she had mentioned that it's high, but it's not like extraordinarily high that it has been in the past in terms of the debt relative to consumer incomes. But there's been a ton of people that have been doing a buy now and pay later strategy. So that's up 20%. And the cost of financing has gone up a ton for corporations. So that was something that was very interesting to look at, uh, some graphs showing the cost of capital for corporations has been coming down and down and down, but there's a lot of refinances that are going to have to happen with corporations at higher rates, and that's going to hurt corporate profits. This is particularly hard for smaller companies who uh, maybe are not doing as well financially, <laughs> which leads to some very interesting conversations that were had. It's so fun to listen to analysts talking with other um, management firms and hear different bantering back and forth. But one thing that was interesting to hear was that uh, people were concerned about small companies. So like, for example, if you look at the Russell 2000, which is a really broad small cap index, uh, there are a lot of what Lizanne Saunders calls zombie companies, you know, companies that are not able to meet their interest expense based on their earnings that, they're, that they have right now. So there's a ton of those companies in there, and if they have to refinance at higher rates, that could really, really hurt them, maybe even lead to some bankruptcies. And she also pointed out that the uh, S&P 600, which is uh, another small cap index, but uh, that one is constructed by Standard & Poor's. What's cool about that or unique about that particular index is that they actually screen and filter for companies that have higher quality that are in the small cap space as well as profitability. So you have less of those zombie companies there. So this is one of the problems that we have with indexing. A lot of people are buying exchange traded funds and uh, index funds. And, and, you know, not all indexes are the same. It's really important to understand what's in them. We had a big discussion about, well, what's in the growth indexes and the growth ETFs versus the value ETFs, you can have a lot of different changes in the actual constituents in the ETFs and the methodology that's used for quote unquote growth or quote unquote value stocks are so diverse that you can have big differentials in performance. So uh, it's very difficult for, for somebody to say, oh, we like value or we like growth. Now our philosophy, and we'll get into this more in this um, particular podcast, but uh, our philosophy is to more be oriented towards an actual fundamental case, you know, that's more detailed, not just, you know, something simple like looking at price to book or looking at price to earnings or something like that. It's a little bit more uh, nuanced than that um, in terms of how to dissect things. The overarching thing, though, that was talked about was how there's all these indicators that if you stack them all up, they lead towards a higher probability towards a recession. The problem is, is that a recession doesn't always necessarily mean that the stock market is going to do bad. It really, the lags in the lead times are so wide and varied. Um, there's times when, you know, the Fed could be easing and then the markets are not doing well and vice versa. Currently, what's happening right now, according to 
Kathy Jones, the fixed income analyst, she said that the market is basically pricing in four rate cuts that start in March. And there's a methodology that she used that seemed pretty sound to me um, in how she came up with that. But if that's the case, that's pretty aggressive cutting, and it's pretty soon, right? It's We're talking just a few months or so. Their strategists at Schwab tend to believe that we will have cuts, but they're going to happen later. Other analysts that I follow have talked about uh, different scenarios, and almost everybody is lining up right now towards the belief that we're going to have cuts and uh, that we're going to have a slowdown. You know, the contrarian in me kind of wants to just disregard that because uh, a lot of times these things happen, we, all these predictions come out and then they're wrong. And I'm going to get into a little bit about more of that when we start talking about the compass part of this, this particular episode. Okay, so we talked about the slowdown and what's happening in the fixed income market. Another thing that was interesting, Kathy Jones had brought up, she's the fixed income analyst, by the way, she did an analysis or her team did an analysis where they looked at various fixed income strategies and how they would perform depending on a few different scenarios, whether we had real aggressive rate cuts or whether we had no rate cuts or, or whether inflation revived, which could happen too. And it was really interesting. She looked at ladders, one to five year ladders, one to 10 year ladders, and looked at barbelling. And what I found interesting is that barbelling strategies look to have a more robust return pattern throughout all the different scenarios. It wasn't always a number one performing strategy across every scenario, but if you averaged it out, it was pretty much the mo most robust way of looking at things, which I find to be very interesting. Some of the fixed income strategists that we work with in our fixed income allocations are doing some of that now. There was also a lot of discussion about you want to avoid lower credit quality issues because if we do have a slowdown, those lower credit quality issues are not likely to do well. And we've pretty much been, we definitely have been underweighting all of those areas because of that. But a lot of people are too short on the yield curve for that, that scenario of maybe a, a, a more aggressive uh, loosening, which could happen. So that scenario, um, we've restructured our portfolios in the fixed income side for that scenario. That's pretty interesting. We'll see what happens there with the fixed income side. There was also some dis discussion about the, you know, the global market, the global economy. Looking at the Chinese data, what's interesting is that it's very difficult to believe everything that China says because they don't have the infrastructure that a lot of the West has. They don't have the incentive structures that the West have to, in order to uh, give the data that we're used to here in the United States in particular. But one way you can get around that is by actually looking at the demand for products and services into China based from companies that are in the United States or in Europe that have you know better reporting. So based on what we're seeing there, there's a slowdown uh, continuing in China. And there's some divergences between what the Chinese government is saying versus what, what we're seeing from the reporting you know, data from companies that have what would be considered better reporting standards. Based on that, Chinese's, Chinese economy is still slowing. I thought that was an interesting uh, comment. So, okay, so I think I've covered everything I wanted to, that we could really dive into some of these indicators, but I just wanted to just generally say or convey the message that we look at a lot of different strategists and what they're doing. I really spend quite a bit of time looking at the, these strategists' analysis. 
it's pretty universal that these indicators are pointing towards a slowdown. We'll see what actually happens from there. We could have something completely different. And because of all the uncertainty in uh, Washington right now, I think that we're likely to see a lot of surprises in the next 12 months as we move into 2024. Hi, I'm Louis Giannis, founder of WealthNet Investments. I wrote a book. You may know this, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to pick up my book. It's called The Financial Freedom Blueprint. I wrote this book to answer the most common questions that people have, and I lay a roadmap out that really applies to anybody, whether you're very wealthy or just getting started out. The book is good to have as a resource to do a great financial plan for yourself, and I answer a lot of common questions that you may have regarding finances. So go pick up a copy today. You just go to pathtorealwealth.com, and you can order it there. This leads me into uh, talking about the the concept of a compass. The compass is what, you know, that's what guides you. It's the North Star. You're kind of going in that direction. That direction will, you know, you might get off course a little bit one way or the other, but you always want to steer back towards that North Star or whatever the compass direction that you're heading towards. I think one of the best compasses for the long term really comes from some of the some of the sages in the investment world that people all know about, but we all tend to forget about. And in particular, that would be Benjamin Graham uh, and the offshoot of Benjamin Graham, who would be Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett always talks about what is the, you know, you ask him the question, what should I read? And numerous times he says the best investment book ever written is The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And if you pick up a newer copy of it, you'll see that the uh, it was actually, there's a forward written by Warren Buffett, and he says, listen, read chapter 8 and read chapter 20. If you follow those rules, they will not lead you astray. What he does say, actually, I think he says something like, you will not have bad results if you follow these concepts in chapter 8 and chapter 20, which I interpret as, as you will have good results relative to other ways that you could be investing. So I thought what I would do today is just talk a little bit about what's in chapter eight and what's in chapter 20. Because some of this to many of you will be like, duh, this, you know, you know this already, but you know, there's something about being, being reminded that's so important. I was in a, a call with uh, Joe Polish, who is a, one of the, one of the top marketers really on the planet, I believe. And I was talking about some, some different things, and, and he said, you know, uh, we are just reminding you of what the things that you need to do, and these reminders are always helpful because it's blocking and tackling. So I'm going to go over some blocking and tackling, and hopefully you stay with me on this because I think it's definitely well worth your time to listen to this. So chapter eight is called Investors and Market, uh, Investor and Market Fluctuations. So a lot of the discussion has to do with market fluctuations. There's really a couple of big takeaways from market fluctuations. First is how you look at market fluctuations. Market fluctuations can be looked as a guide towards how I'm going to respond. So a lot of people will make decisions based upon recent market performance because emotionally it affects us. And there's a big warning in that chapter to say, do not let short-term market fluctuations, in particular to the downside, derail a rational approach to investing. 
So that was part one. So in other words, don't let a, a recent short-term move that's happened in a year or two, two years to the downside affect your investment strategy so that you actually bail or you try to chase other things that don't make economic sense. Another key important thing about fluctuations that was brought up by Benjamin Graham is that you want to look at these market fluctuations in context of Mr. Market. Many of you have heard of Mr. Market, but let me just reiterate what it is. Mr. Market is like a concept. Imagine that you had a business partner. His name is Mr. Market, and he is a manic depressive person. He will, uh, he will sell you things that are way too expensive, or he will buy things from you at a price that's way too expensive, or he will sell to you at stupid price. What's cool about Mr. Market is he's your buddy. If you have a high quality company and Mr. Market is getting fearful and you can buy things at a discount, then he you take advantage of that. If Mr. Market has prices at nosebleeds and everybody loves something, but it's way ahead of itself and the expected return on that investment is lower than the fixed income rates, then you should give it to Mr. Market and take advantage of that, have some dry powder. So the idea is to not be emotionally guided by the short-term vicissitudes or fluctuations in the market. Use Mr. Market to your advantage and don't let it be an emotional knee-jerk response. This is one of the hardest things to do. It's easier said than done for a lot of people. In fact, many people, whenever there's a slowdown, they'll start questioning everything about their investment strategy, when in fact it's an actual normal fluctuation. And there's a big discussion in the chapter about how normal fluctuations, you should anticipate them, you should be ready for them, you should understand them. So we spend a lot of time on risk profiling when we are, have a new client that comes in because we want them to understand what, what does this mean? What's normal? And so if you understand what's normal, if you understand that over the long run, in particular with stocks, stocks are just companies and the value of that company will follow over the long term the average earnings power of that business. So it will move up and down around that average earnings power. But you will, if you know what that earnings power is or if you have a good idea, obviously you don't know everything about it, but if you have a generally good idea and you make conservative estimates, then uh, you can make more sound decisions over time. And if you diversify and do the, do the concept of looking at earnings power and trying to buy at a discount, then you're generally going to come out ahead based on history, based on some of the top investors. That is what's to be expected over time. Obviously, past performance doesn't equal future results, but it is a disciplined way that makes a lot of sense and has been shown to work in practice. There's a lot talking about fluctuations. So then there's a concept in chapter eight talking about, well, how much should I have in stocks versus bonds? And a lot of the discussion there basically is saying when you don't have enough opportunities that give you a good expected return, then you should have that in secure fixed income securities generally between one and seven years. And that makes a lot of sense, right? You want to protect that capital. Why in the shorter end of the yield curve for the one to seven year range? Because if you have big movements in interest rates, you're not going to lose money as much and you can have more you know, st stability in your performance. So that, that has obviously could help a lot of investors when you have rising interest rates. 
that's another part of it. So the, the, the percentage that you have in stocks versus bonds should be a function of the available opportunities in the marketplace and what the interest rates are, which makes complete sense. Instead of focusing in on timing the market, a big part of this conversation in chapter eight is, you know, a lot of people look at these market forecasts and we were just talking about market market forecasts. And I really kind of went in depth with some of these market forecasts that I just talked to. You can consider it, but what the intelligent investor says on chapter eight, i.e. Benjamin Graham, you should not listen to market forecasts, but you should actually think of yourself as more of a pricing person. Keep all your attention on the pricing of securities, not on forecasts, forecasts of the overall market. So really the thought process, I believe in that, is that uh, if you have the right kind of business that you understand, which is a big part of this, is you you think of it as owning a piece of a business and you understand it. And because you understand it, you have a general feeling for how much can be earned. And if you use conservative estimates in your uh, valuation of what the earnings power of a company is, then you can have a reasonable basis as as to what the fair value of the company is. And you could expect, uh, you know, what the expected return is from that compared to a risk-free or very low-risk fixed-income security. All of that leads to uh, the concept of margin of safety, which is a big part of chapter 20. Chapter 20 talks about margin of safety as a central concept of investing. That's the title of the chapter. So the, the concept of margin of safety is really just a simple thing. It is, if I'm doing a conservative estimate on a company and I know what that earnings yield is, say, let's say it's 8% based on the current pricing of where the stock or that company is at price today, if that expected return is bigger or big enough relative to the fixed income rate, then I have a cushion. I have a cushion between the difference between the value of the companies or the expected return of that company and your fixed income securities. Then you can feel comfortable that you can buy more. So the, the concept of buy, sell, hold is really important. So for any given day, you might have a great company that is overpriced and maybe you don't want to put more capital into it. You know, like in my opinion right now, Costco, which is a great company uh, fundamentally, uh, is probably probably a little ahead of itself. Not a lot of margin of safety there. So then, you know, you might defer from buying some of that and then you would buy something else. So this is the kind of something that has the margin of safety, by the way, and has a good quality. If one takes that approach to investing over the long term, And based on the rationale that the price of a company's shares will follow the earnings power of that company over time, then it's a reasonable way to invest and it will allow you to focus more on the pricing and less on the timing and forecasts of the market. And your asset allocation will be more conservative relative to uh, other types of speculative strategies. Another concept that is brought up really in chapter eight, which we've already kind of talked about, is the concept of speculation versus investing. Now, you can get caught up in semantics, so I just kind of want to cut to the chase of what I I believe is what's meant in uh, Benjamin Graham's work. What he means by speculation is is that you can't really value something if, if the economics of that business are really hard to understand. You know, you're really speculating at that point. And the concept... Uh, that is used is that you should separate your speculation capital 
from your investment capital. If you're going to speculate, speculate with your eyes wide open and only limit the amount that you're going to put into speculation. And we tell that to clients all the time. You know, they, they're like, hey, I've heard about this, that, or the other stock. It's like, um, you know, if you want to participate in that, it doesn't kind of meet the, meet the criteria that we would look at. But, uh, you know, that's a speculation. Let's put it in another account. And this is your speculation account. And let's allocate a certain amount to that, 2%, 5%, 10%. But let's limit that amount because it's a speculation. Knowing that for many investors, speculation has generally, it's generally a break-even or a loss endeavor. Some people have, you know, there's always examples of people that made lots of money speculating. So, you know, it doesn't mean that's why you speculate, right? So for that upside, but limit it, manage the risk with speculation. That's a big part of kind of the navigation that we're talking about here today. So like, for example, I would consider Bitcoin or any kind of uh, cryptocurrency at this point to be a speculation. So that's really generally it. It's the concept of, you know, asset allocation, based on opportunities, uh, focusing on pricing, not on uh, market forecasts or timing, diversifying, thinking long-term, earnings power, you know, think like a business owner, invest in things that you understand, um, having a margin of safety at the prices that you buy. And if you don't, then, you know, have short, shorter term fixed income securities. All of those concepts are concepts I believe are central to being able to navigate during times when you have craziness going around you. Like right now, right now, there's so many things as we just discussed that are happening and you could speculate one way or the other, but if you bet too much on that, you're liable to make some bad choices. It's not really truly investing. So that's my message for today. I hope you found this interesting. If you did, you know, share this with your friends, share this with colleagues, family members. I hope that this helps people make better investment choices in the coming years and for their life. As always, if you would like to contact us to learn about our services for wealth advice and for investment management, you just go to our website, wealthnetinvest.com, and you click on the schedule a call button and you will get a hold of us and we can schedule a call to just have an introduction see if we can help you. I'm currently taking on a limited number of clients that I work with directly with a minimum investment of $2 million in investable assets. Our firm minimum is $1 million to work with other advisors here on staff. Schedule a call today to find out what your next step should be. I hope you enjoyed listening. Follow me on YouTube for additional episodes. Until next time. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoy the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.